From UNH, Cooperative Extension, this is Relative to New Hampshire. Step into the classroom and listen in while a group of UNH students explore the underlying aspects of current issues under consideration at New Hampshire's State House. We pick apart those issues and connect with experts all to share with you insights from our scientific community that enhance our understanding of the biological world right here in New Hampshire, home of the greatest democracy in the world. I'm your moderator, Dr. Anna-Kate Wallingford. I'm Tyler. I'm a senior neuroscience and behavior major. Tyler has been following HB 220, Establishing Medical Freedom and Immunization, which was passed and adopted in this year's session with an amendment. That amendment essentially added the establishment of a committee to examine the policy of medical interventions going forward. But essentially, the bill states that every person has the natural, essential, inherent right to bodily integrity, free from any threat or compulsion by government to accept an immunization. Accordingly, no person may be compelled to receive an immunization for COVID-19 in order to secure, receive, or access any public facility, any public benefit, or any public services from the state of New Hampshire, or any political subdivision thereof, including but not limited to counties, cities, towns, precincts, water districts, school districts, school administrative units, or quasi-public entities. Tyler attended public hearings held by the House Committee on Health, Human Services, and Elderly Affairs, and he reported back to the group on a regular basis what he learned. The group is a team of science liaisons made up of UNH students from a diverse array of departments in the College of Life Sciences and Agriculture, as well as my co-moderators, Extension's Public Engagement Program Manager, Nate Burnett, and Extension's Public Affairs Manager, Lauren Banker. Obviously, this is a controversial topic. And things do seem to change from day to day in terms of what we know about this disease. So keep in mind that much of this recording was made in the past, and I will be careful to point out when these conversations occurred. But let's jump right in with Tyler's summary of the bill and the hearing he attended in February of 2021. Establishing medical freedom for immunizations. Um, Basically, it establishes the right for people to have bodily integrity and um, you know, it doesn't compel them to accept any medical intervention that they don't want to have. And it also protects them from being discriminated against or if they uh, refuse any sort of medical intervention or immunization. I thought it was really interesting because of, of course, the pandemic and the vaccines that we have going around and what that might mean for the future this year. Like the big argument that kept coming up, of course, was the argument of um, people having integrity over their own bodies and what they put in their bodies and what they don't. But kind of an interesting um, origin for this bill was that apparently um, in New Hampshire, foster parents have to have all of their immunizations before they can uh, foster children, which I did not know. And if they decide that they don't want to get immunized, then they are ineligible to become foster parents. Um, So it's kind of you either get your shots or you can't be parents. And so this um, bill is the person who wrote this bill kind of wanted to um, bypass that, I guess, or make it so that people could be foster parents if they didn't want to uh, immunize. 
the the conversation really went towards how this bill would affect kids in school once we start having more um, kids in physical classes and whether it got into you know the whole realm of like whether we were going to segregate the non-vaccinated kids to one side of the class and all the other kids to like another side of the class and like this whole kind of debate started happening some were equating getting vaccinated to treating people um like they treat them now with like peanut allergies like that they would still just be a member of the class and that there wouldn't be any segregation but it's not really the same thing as a peanut allergy especially if like the kids are like breathing on the other kids uh, let's see, uh, it got into like, should schools be mandating vaccines or not? The general consensus was that it should be left up to medical professionals, whether we should be mandating vaccines or not. And then they had a um, doctor of public health, Beth Daly from HHS come in as like a consultant. She did a lot of like basic information on uh, vaccines and because at that point, the conversation definitely turned towards the coronavirus and getting vaccinated. Um, and so she did a lot of basic information on vaccines. And then um, after that, she fielded a bunch of questions. One thing that I didn't know was uh, specifically about the Moderna vaccine, which claims to be 95% effective, but what it's effective towards is preventing you from getting sick and it has no effect on stopping whether you actually get the virus or not. It's just whether you're symptomatic, which was new information to me. I thought that it like prevented you from actually getting the virus. So I feel like that's probably a misconception that a lot of the public will have as well. I have a question. Um, the segregating the students who are not like who are not going to get vaccinated in different classes and those kind of things. Is that was that? came up just with coronavirus vaccination or it usually happens for any other vaccines as well? Yeah, so um, it, it would just happen for the coronavirus vaccination. And just to be clear, they weren't specifically saying that they were going to put them in a separate class, more of like they were going to create some sort of plexiglass barrier um, and keep them in the same classroom which sounds even more ineffective to me, but I'm not an expert either. Okay. Like there was already a debate that uh, from a set of parents that their kids would not get vaccinated. And since then, these things came up. Like I, I, I kind of a, um, thought that there were there are a lot of other vaccines, right? Like when the, from the baby is born and until they grow up, like maybe they are not getting back even the kids vaccinated with those vaccines also and similar thing is following up. So, so Tyler, did it sound like the people who were interested in this bill were also interested in the debate about vaccines in general? Um, yeah, specifically um, vaccines in children. There was a lot of that. I have a quick question about, so is the idea of like either having different protocols or like physically separating awake the kids that were vaccinated and not vaccinated, was that to keep them, because they, was it to keep them from infecting the kids that had been vaccinated or to keep them from infecting the other kids who had not been vaccinated? To um, infect the kids that had not yet been vaccinated. 
Okay. I mean, obviously everybody is concerned about their kids getting a quality education and getting the same education as everybody else. And so they, there was just a lot of speculation and talk about how they were gonna do that with you know, these different philosophies on vaccination and you know, the timing of like, whether there are some kids that are vaccinated, then you have some kids that their parents don't believe in vaccination, so they're not gonna get vaccinated. And then you also have parents of kids that believe in vaccinations and wanna get their kids vaccinated, but they just haven't been able to do it yet because of supply, demand or whatever. And so you've got like these three different factions and there was a lot of talk about how they were going to incorporate each of these categories into the same classroom and make sure that everything was equal and safe. Um, and that segregation of the kids who have and haven't been vaccinated is based on like the assumption that the Moderna vaccine does not like prevent you from being able to transmit the d disease, right? Yeah, I think that that was um, like new information to, to everybody involved at this public hearing pretty much, um, especially the reps. And so I'm not sure that they 100% grasped that um, it, it does not help with prevention of spreading the virus. It only helps with prevention of symptoms. I would be interested in definitely digging into that a little bit more just to provide like education to people about it because it seems like it's a really big misconception. Do you know if any of the other vaccines prevent transmission or? I do not. Um, I just I don't, I actually just don't think the research has happened yet. Oh, okay. Um, I will say in addition, it was Beth Daly. Um, she said that currently Moderna is studying whether um, if you're vaccinated, if you can still spread COVID or not. Um, so Moderna is doing research right now about whether you can spread the virus or not if you've been vaccinated, but it's just so you know, breaking new that um, they just don't know yet. I think they all work differently, but I mean, I, I think, and Tyler, correct me if I'm wrong, I'm reading between the lines, this conversation is about liberty and not necessarily about vaccination. And I think what maybe they were doing was looking for a scenario where students would be unfairly um, categorized as an unvaccinated or a vaccinated student. And that was just like a hypothetical that maybe you could say like, oh, well, that's, that's not the case with the Moderna vaccine because like separating students wouldn't be helpful. But I'm sure that they would come up with more hypotheticals to say like, well, what about this? What about this? What about this? And you can't really knock all of those hypotheticals down with science. What do you think? I definitely think that there was a subtext of civil liberties with the kids and everything like that. But I also think that um, in more of the sciencey direction, we could um, help improve the education with like how the Moderna vaccine to, for a specific example, like actually works because, um, or what it prevents or, or something like that, because it really seems like people just don't understand that. A very reductive synopsis on how the COVID vaccines work. First of all, it's important to know that viruses are not technically living things, or at least not according to most definitions of living organisms. They're essentially just pieces of genetic material that float around and trick your body into replicating more virus. This particular piece of genetic material, SARS-CoV-2, can make us incredibly sick in the process of taking over our bodies. This is the, the disease, it's the symptoms, right? 
our immune systems have never encountered this pathogen before. The process that normally destroys dangerous microbes entering our bodies are caught completely unaware and unprepared. So each of the handful of available vaccines that are essentially training our bodies to fight this virus so it cannot cause the disease, the symptoms, the fever, the coughing, the loss of taste, and the deadly symptoms. Well, lots of folks might be familiar with some of the first vaccines in history, which were essentially just weaker versions of a deadly pathogen. These COVID vaccines are completely different. They don't give you COVID. The Moderna and Pfizer vaccines are mRNA vaccines. mRNA vaccines get your body to temporarily produce fakes of the protein that's dotting the lipid coat around the virus. Those famous spike proteins that give the virus that corona or crown appearance. Johnson & Johnson is a vector vaccine. Vector vaccines use a different harmless virus to introduce some of those unique coronavirus proteins. So it's the same, same protein that's being introduced to your body. This is all to let the macrophages and lymphocytes living in your body um, to recognize the real thing if it shows up and they should get to work on destroying them. Um, and this is all to say that technically it is possible for the virus to be living in the nose of a perfectly healthy vaccinated individual. It's unclear on how possible it is for the vaccinated person with that nose full of virus to get somebody else sick. Um, the science just isn't there to answer that question yet. Okay, so back to the discussion, because this law has had some direct impacts on us in the UNH community, um, which was one big COVID bubble for the 2020-2021 academic year. Unlike most universities in the country, our classes were in person for the whole year. All of Durham masked up, washed their hands, sanitized everything all the time. The university conducted a robust contact tracing program and provided quarantine housing when it was necessary. Students were tested for the virus twice weekly to detect any asymptomatic infections in our bubble as soon as possible. Um, the university even opened up an in-house lab to run all these tests and put students to work in that lab. It's something that we're all really, really proud of. And we made it through the year with infection rates remaining below 1%. Being able to mandate vaccination within our bubble would do a lot to bring things back to normal here on campus. But this law prevents the university from this kind of requirement. We spoke with Dr. Peter Degnan in May of 2021 to get some perspective from folks in charge of keeping the campus community healthy and thriving. I'll let him introduce himself. So my name is Peter Degnan. I'm a physician and a medical director of health and wellness here on UNH in the Durham campus. I've been here probably seven years now. I've been in the medical director role for about five years. And uh, previous to that, I had been out in general community practice and primarily in the Seacoast, New Hampshire area for 20, 25 years before coming to UNH. Yeah, well, welcome. The bill that we're talking about today is HB 220. If passed, it would give people in New Hampshire the uh, freedom from immunizations. And that also includes, of course, the COVID-19 vaccine. So we were hoping to talk to a medical professional like yourself to kind of understand the, the medical ramifications if a bill like this were to pass in the House. So um, the first thing that I'd like to ask you is specifically about COVID-19 and how what you have seen and how that disease has affected campus life and the students and staff. The impact of COVID-19 on the university and those, it's just immense. 
it's probably difficult even from my perspective to even to account for all of the, the various impacts across the spectrum. You know, from my standpoint, most importantly, it has to do with the personal well-being and, and health status of the students, faculty, and staff that we care for. We were significantly impacted with COVID-19 with, I think, uh, I think now it's probably around 2,300 plus cases of uh, COVID infection that have, have been de uh, detected and tracked by the university. The good news of those 2,300 is the, the majority of those affected are in an age range of say 18 to 25. And fortunately, that's an age range that from a public health standpoint have been probably the least impacted regarding signs and symptoms and complications of, of COVID infection. But that being said, we've had some students that have required hospitalization as a result of COVID-19 infection. Uh, we've had some students that have avoided hospitalization but have been quite ill and as a result have been unable to participate in their normal uh, academic activities. Not only is there the health risk, uh, but then there's a, a cascade of effects in terms of impaired academic performance. Also, for those individuals that have been diagnosed with COVID-19 infection, we've seen uh, a substantial number of those identified close contacts on campus that they had identified as it, at an increased infectious risk. And as you begin to follow that tree of, of uh, contact tracing, um, many of the the cases of COVID-19 across campus um, relate to a previous campus exposure. So there's a, a widespread ripple effect with one individual becoming ill and then, and then interacting with others often before they develop signs of symptoms of illness and then passing that on to, to others. And that's one of the huge benefits of vaccination. Not only does vaccination, it's incredibly important because it prevents serious symptoms of illness, like needs to be hospitalized or risk of death with, from COVID. But what it can help is to break the chain of infectivity. That's why we focus so much on the value of immunizations in general here at the university, is to, to reduce the risk of spreading infection onto others. So we did have a much longer conversation about UNH's vaccination policy in general, and we did discuss some history of a recent mumps outbreak on campus. So Dr. Dyden definitely has some personal and professional experience to draw on when it comes to the spread of diseases in this community and the importance of vaccination. Um, for the record, there are requirements for UNH students to have a rather long list of vaccines before coming to live and study on campus, including MMR, which protects against measles, mumps, and rubella. There's DPT for diphtheria, pertussis, and tetanus. There's a vaccine for meningitis and a chickenpox vaccination or, or providing some proof of illness that shows that you have immunity from chickenpox. Back to Tyler's interview. If this bill were to pass and people um, across the state were not required to have immunizations if they did not want to have them, how would that affect the um, student body at UNH? Well, I think you would see uh, some significant negative effects as a result of that. Uh, I think you would likely see more infectivity of illness on campus than previously seen. Pertussis being an example of one whooping cough pertussis 
where there's been a bit of a resurgence, they've identified that childhood pertussis vaccination does not confer lifelong protection, but that the protection wears off about the time that one is entering into late high school or college. So without a required vaccines plan, there's would be potentially many more people that are that are inadequately protected against pertussis that become pertussis carriers or sources of infection onto others. And that would have, again, a ripple effect through the community. There are more severe types of infections, meningitis being a form of, and that can be devastating. The bacteria that causes meningitis can be subtle and one can be mildly ill and not be aware of their active infection and yet pose an infectious risk onto another person. And that other person may be very susceptible for whatever reason to that infection and can become deathly ill and it is potentially fatal. There is a much higher risk for these types of transmissible illnesses, especially in a university setting where we're in very close contact with each other, not only in the classroom, but then especially in uh, some of whether it's on campus or off campus housing. I was just going to ask, what are the consequences? So if you have a community that is mixed vaccination, like some people are vaccinated, some people aren't, um, how does that affect the overall effectiveness? Yeah, well, it, it's it, it certainly, well, there's two parts to your question, Marissa. Um, so one would be, there are so many more people that are susceptible to illness once exposed. But there, one of the reasons why there's been so much effort to help people get vaccinated as quickly as possible against COVID-19 is is that it reduces the general prevalence of virus in the community and prevents breakthrough variants. So you're, you know, there's all this buzz about um, COVID variants. And we've seen instances here on campus where we've had people become infected twice um, from COVID. And we've been able, the, the lab here has been phenomenal. They've actually stored every single positive sample that they've collected since testing has started. And they can go back and identify that their first infection was due to one form of virus and their second infection was due to a different variant form of the virus. The more active virus that's in the community, the more likely it is to evolve and form a variant infection, where if you can quickly protect the, the large majority, that kind of concept of herd immunity, the, the background uh, activity of the virus drops way down and there is much less opportunity for it to evolve into a variant. Do you have any insight as to how UNH would ensure student and teachers safety in the classroom because at the public hearing, they were talking about grade school children and having, if they were not going to require vaccines, having like plexiglass barriers in the classroom or um, grouping children by either vaccination status and not vaccinated. How would UNH go about, you know, ensuring the safety if they couldn't require people to be immunized? Yeah, it's, well, it's, it's a really interesting question. Uh, First, it, some of the consequences may be noted even at the very beginning before a student actually begins to matriculate at, at UNH. So I'm imagining a situation where a student maybe from Massachusetts, for instance, Massachusetts has a pretty stringent vaccination 
I'm an, I'm an 18 year old high school student looking to go to college and uh, I've been accepted at five schools, one of them UNH. I really like UNH, but all of a sudden there's no immunization requirement uh, and I'm immunized. I believe in immunizations. I believe in science and the value of public health. Why would I take the chance of going to a, a New Hampshire state school when I can go to a high quality education institution in my own home state or, or in, a, in a different state to get a great education and know that I can be in the classroom and don't have to worry about the person that I'm sitting next to. Uh, I think it would be a shame if there had to be some type of barrier, whether it's a virtual barrier or actually a physical barrier to separate out students with one form of immunization protection versus another. Um, I know there's a lot of controversy just about the issue about COVID vaccination and what privileges uh, one gets over another if you can prove that you're vaccinated. I think it all it does is, in, in my mind, it reinforces these divisions in our society about what we value and, and what we don't. I'm all for personal freedom. I do think, however, that there is a difference between exercising your personal freedom uh, versus committing yourself to a college university experience that where you have to bear some self-responsibility. That's my personal belief not not reflective of my belief. <laughs> is there any sort of information that you would like the general public to know both about um, immunizations or the COVID-19 vaccine that you feel um, isn't very clear well there's been a lot made about some of the new technology that's been involved in the generation of the COVID vaccinations, at least the three major ones, Pfizer, Moderna, and the uh, Johnson & Johnson, Janssen vaccine. Um, they're, all, they're all mRNA vaccines. Um, but it turns out that the mRNA technology has actually been studied and researched for years and is really a timely and appropriate solution for the creation of a, of a rapid vaccination effort. So it's by no means experimental that there's been long proven safety with mRNA vaccines. Uh, there's no question that they've been effective. I mean, I think we're, we're even starting to see the impact here at the university already with the numbers of our cases beginning to drop. But it's multifactorial, but I do think the fact that well over a third of our campus community maybe even approaching a half of our active, current active campus population has been vaccinated already. I understand that for some who have been cautious and not wanting to jump in and receive the vaccination right away, that they see these the numbers of new cases dropping, they see society beginning to open again, and they feel that, well, I waited and, and things are better, so maybe I'll, I'll just continue to hold off on receiving the vaccination. I, I think the more and more that I read, there is a real concern for kind of a resurgence or, or reactivation or renewed activity of the COVID virus uh, as we transition into the next late fall and early winter. I, this year has been brutal for all of us, and but I, I can't even imagine being a student and, and having spent a year the way we just spent this last year. I'm really concerned that if we don't get achieve um, significant volume of, of vaccination within our student population, that there's a risk that we could fall back into a more restrictive mode 
uh, next winter. And I don't mean that as a scare tactic, but I just think that's the reality. And it's okay if students are hesitant, it's okay if they wanna think about it and carefully weigh their decisions, but if they really, really wanna see the university come back into a, a normal mode of operation and social events and athletic events and the things that we all enjoy, I just need to put in a plug for the importance of being vaccinated to make that happen. Correct me if I'm wrong, your role at UNH is, is the primary care provider of a lot of young people. Am I, am I right about that? And just talking about the general vaccine hesitancy, it sounds like more and more people are turning to their doctors to answer questions. Um, and if you wouldn't mind kind of generally talking about what are the, the main concerns you're hearing and how do you address them? Like what has been your approach to addressing those, those common concerns about the vaccines? You're correct in that we are, are essentially the kind of a medical home away from home for many of the students. And, and for some students, though, we are their primary source of medical care. They, they don't have any other options or alternatives for, for, um, for health care while they're here at, at UNH. We've always had a, a larger public health role in supporting university operations, but that's really amplified this last year which has been really fascinating and interesting, but a little stressful too. Uh, what we hear from students, um, not so much is a, a sense of caution. A lot of it is concerned about side effects related to the vaccination. Uh, they hear in the news and they hear from friends that have received the vaccination. And especially after the second vaccination is, is that there may be a period of feeling it mildly ill, um, maybe a little low grade fever, chills, muscle aches, really tired. Um, typically, that's very short period of time, often no more than 24 hours. I, I think for a lot of students, they, they hear that and perhaps they have in-class responsibilities that they need to attend to. Maybe they've got an upcoming exam. Maybe there's something important coming up where they just feel like they can't really afford to take that time to lay low and stay in bed for, for a day while they re recover. And, and I understand that. Although it would be great for them to be vaccinated right away, I see the end of the, the semester as creating an opportunity for, for those folks to then at that time pursue vaccinations. Are, are you hearing anybody say something along the lines of, um, you know, I think, I think I got sick. I think I probably have antibodies, so I don't need to be vaccinated. And yeah. are you hearing that? Like how, what, what's your response to that? Yeah, great question. Well, I'll use my own personal example as part of that. I was sure that I had um, back in last March, uh, February, March, when we were just really identifying COVID and we started to have our first um, individuals test positive on campus. I was sure that I had been exposed. I had a period where I wasn't feeling well, had to take a little time off work. I thought for sure I had COVID. I actually went and, and had an antibody level done and, and I had nothing. If I was exposed, I didn't generate an immune response. Um, and that was, for me, that was really compelling to emphasize the importance of adequate vaccination for me. Because we're, you know, of those 2,300 people that have been diagnosed with COVID, probably 2,200 have come through our doors. So it's pretty high risk here. And I, I wanted to be sure that myself, but especially all of our staff were protected and how reliable are those antibody tests? Like either the one that you took or one of the ones that somebody could get their hands on? Is there a big, how do you interpret the results of those? Yeah, 
we don't usually recommend doing antibody testing for precisely that reason. You, you, it's possible that you can generate an immune response uh, against COVID, for instance, or any other infection, but it just won't be measurable by doing an antibody level. Or you can show protection against antibody, but it doesn't necessarily mean that you have any long-term protection. All it means is, is that at that moment, you have antibodies that may be somewhat protective, but in a week or two or a month, that could all be gone and, and you're right back to, to ground zero again. All right, so just a reminder that this interview was recorded in May of 2021 before we started seeing the impacts of the Delta variant of COVID-19. Students have returned to campus this fall and have been asked to voluntarily provide their vaccination record to the university's health system. Um, as of August, you know, as of the beginning of the semester, more than 80% of faculty and staff were vaccinated. Um, the student rates were around 70% when they came back to campus. The university expects that number to increase as students upload those vaccination records and we get a better sense of how many are vaccinated. So we're all still masked up when inside and we are tested regularly. Those of us who are vaccinated are required to test less frequently, but we are holding the line on COVID infections on campus using some of the same strategies that we used at the very beginning. I asked Tyler what his main takeaways were from following this bill and, and discussing this issue with experts. A message that was almost kind of a subtext message that I really, really liked is that science is always changing and updated. And as we gain new data, we get new advice and that kind of thing. Um, it's not like a concrete entity, if you will. Um, because I think that just in the layperson's perspective, when, especially when the pandemic was just starting, like we would get new and conflicting information week after week after week. And it was because we were getting more and more data about what was working, what wasn't working and how to prevent the spread. To the layperson who doesn't really understand how science works, it was more of a inauthentic and conflicting message in that it really made it seem like the people that were in these higher governing bodies didn't know what they were talking about or what they were doing. And so being able to communicate that science is always changing once we get new data, I think would not only be really relevant to us as like presenting science in this format, but also um, would just give the general population a better understanding that science is always changing when we get more information. So if you're not sure what to make of all of this, you know, all this information coming at you really fast, why not talk to your doctor? They'll be able to put all this noise into perspective. We really have a lot of thanks to give uh, Dr. Degnan for helping us to understand the situation on our campus. And all the gratitude in the world is not enough to those healthcare workers who are putting their lives on the line, keeping us healthy and safe. 
Um, And thank you so much for listening. Relative to New Hampshire is a production of UNH Cooperative Extension, an equal opportunity educator and employer. All music is used by permission or Creative Commons licensing. UNH Cooperative Extension is a nonpartisan organization. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are not necessarily those of the university, its trustees, or its volunteers. Inclusion or exclusion of commercial enterprises in this podcast does not equate endorsement, The University of New Hampshire, New Hampshire counties, and the U.S. Department of Agriculture cooperate to provide extension programming in the Granite State. This podcast in particular was made possible by the UNH Extension Internship Program. If you're interested in supporting great work like this for the future, learn more at extension.unh.edu slash internships.